Hello, everyone, and welcome to On Crime and Punishment. This is a podcast from the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Haggerty chats with a group of prison scholars from Ottawa, led by Dr. Jennifer Kilty, along with a couple of her grad students, who are working on questions around decarceration, and particularly questions of decarceration in the COVID-19 era. As always, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or through another app. And give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. It helps move us up in the search algorithm. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CCR underscore U of A and on YouTube. Like and subscribe to our videos at youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. And we hope you really enjoy this very enlightening conversation. Everyone, to another installment of our podcast that's reflecting on issues related to COVID and incarceration in Canada. Uh, we have something a little different today. We have a larger group than historically we've had, and I think we're very privileged to have uh, some excellent people to contribute today. I'm going to start by just introducing everyone. Uh, who's everyone's given me a bit of a background about who they are that they'd like to share. So um, uh, Vicki Chartrand, if you could just wave, Vicki. Uh, Vicki is a mama. She's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Sociology at Bishops University. She has a broad background in advocating for women and children, people in prisons, and for Indigenous communities. Uh, next up is Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Rachel Fader is a PhD candidate in the Department of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, she has lived experience of incarceration and her doctoral research is in examining the strengths, talents, and resiliency of criminalized women, notwithstanding or despite histories of trauma, incarceration, and an overall oppressive system. Brittany, uh, uh, Brittany is a PhD candidate, excuse me, I should say Brittany Mario is a PhD candidate in the Department of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Her doctoral research examines correctional programming, mental health interventions, and federally sentenced women. And last but not least, uh, Professor Jennifer Kilty is a full professor and chair in the Department of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. She has conducted research on criminalized women, uh, excuse me, criminalized women's experiences of incarceration and the criminalization of HIV non-disclosure. Uh, she's actually supervising both Rachel and Brittany's doctoral research uh, program. So we have a nice tight series of connections here. So uh, these uh, four fantastic, brilliant women have come together uh, to work on this podcast. Uh, and they're also contributing to a subsequent paper uh, related to their shared interests in advancing awareness and understanding of criminalized women's experiences uh, and using particularly feminist anti-colonial frameworks and their shared political com commitment to uh, ab excuse me, abolitionism, which I'm sure will come out in our discussion today. Uh, in addition to academic research, all four women are keep appraised of the ongoing situation in Canadian prisons by way of their own research and that conducted by various research centers. 
uh, such as the Center for Our Justice Exchange, their personal networks, which include many current and formerly criminalized people, and their broad affiliations with corrections, the media, and other prison transparency efforts across the country. So beautiful, thank you very much. Um, so for the benefit of the listeners, uh, we, the group of us, the five of us had a preliminary discussion about some themes that we'd like, like to talk about. Uh, I'll introduce those themes and um, one person, one of our participants has kind of agreed to be the first point of contact for each of our questions, but everyone's entitled or not entitled, encouraged to jump in and uh, participate with follow-up clarifications, etc. So thanks to everyone. Thank you. So I guess the first place to start is the, you know, the, the big picture question is, is who, I think we asked uh, Jennifer to speak to this in terms of the big picture, picture in Canada around prisons and incarceration, what are the major trends or themes that I think people should be attuned to? Yeah, well, I think, you know, COVID is a really interesting context within which to start thinking about incarceration, because I think what the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted is how things like this, pandemics like this, uh, crisis moments exacerbate existing problems and existing inequalities in the system. So it kind of shows all the fault lines and fractures in the current system. And it, and it shows them in sort of a, a glaring light um, because any issue that, that is uh, facing us uh, on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of uh, corrections and governance and, and management um, becomes strained in this kind of environment. So um, one thing that I would point out, and, and I know Vicky could speak to this as well, um, one thing that's really, really common across correctional systems here in Canada, and that would be either the provincial system or the federal system. Um, I'm assuming listeners might know the difference, but in case they don't, uh, the federal system is for individuals that serve um, a sentence of two uh, years or more. And the provincial system is for less serious offenses. We talk about a summary conviction offenses. Um, and that's anyone that's gonna be serving a sentence of less than two years. So both of these systems um, are very, very tight, closed institutional systems. So what we really need to take from that is that there's a lack of transparency. There's, and, and whenever there's a lack of transparency in an institutional structure and system, um, any type of oppression or abuse of power um, can be hidden from the public's view, can be hidden from um, journalists who might be able to expose it, um, and certainly uh, becomes difficult for researchers to access. And so this lack of transparency means that there's a lack of accountability for the day-to-day -day interactions and the day-to-day -day events that happen in a prison context. So we see that lack of accountability and we see that lack of transparency in a number of different ways. The most obvious to us being academics um, is the fact that the vast majority of external applications to do research inside corrections uh, are denied, are refused. Um, so there are some uh, lucky folks across the country that have access, um, but those folks are really few and far between. Uh, and, and so that's a, that's a major problem, especially when you're looking at individuals that are, you know, highly respected in their field, well-established scholars, people that are, are working on research projects that have been vetted by their peers for ethics already and that have been granted public monies through the Tri-Council funding. So there's, there's all of this great support and recognition for the project and then we're denied access into what should be, what is, but doesn't function that way, what should be a public institution. So here you are with 
public money, not able to get inside a public institution. Um, and that really sets up a dynamic where, of course, we're going to start to wonder, well, what are you hiding? What's going on? And when you start to hear through all of your networks and through the research that is able, the, the researchers who are able to get inside, when you start hearing those kinds of reports, as we've heard um, through our own networks, through um, the, the jail accountability hotlines that are emerging here in Ontario, that there's one here in Ottawa and there's now one in Toronto, um, and from our networks of, of communication with people on the inside and, and that had been previously incarcerated, uh, the day-to-day goings-on in prison right now are absolutely under strain uh, due to COVID. And there are a lot of implications there, uh, just in terms of the management of people, the management and warehousing of bodies in a tight, closed institutional space when you have an airborne pandemic. So, I mean, I, I know that Brittany and Rachel are going to uh, speak to these impacts. I don't want to start getting into that necessarily, but I think that the, the main thing that our listeners should think about is this lack of transparency. We don't get in. And as such as academics, right, NGOs have trouble getting in. Um, the, the Office of the Correctional Investigator has trouble getting data and statistics and numbers uh, about various things from uh, the Correctional Service of Canada. These are ongoing issues at, at levels that are uh, far beyond just the individual academic or individual researcher. Um, so that's a major issue. How do we hold accountable a public institution that refuses us entry? So was this- um, just on that topic, I just wanted to quickly add, also, um, with the lack of transparency, not only are we having trouble getting in, but prisoners are being threatened by about sending information out right. as well. So prisoners um, are, like, in terms of phones being monitored, mail, letters being monitored, uh, no visits going on. Uh, so family members, friends, loved ones, people in their networks are not able to learn about the real accurate conditions. And at times when people are able to get that information out, they're being threatened with institutional charges, segregation, later parole dates. Um, many people are scared about even talking about the reality of what's going on in there. So this is a very serious issue. And I think as, as Jennifer mentioned, th these questions about accountability and transparency are kind of endemic with Canadian corrections. I mean, so is there, are we really just in a matter of this is just an extreme continuation of existing trends? Is that pretty much how you'd characterize it? I would say so, yeah. I, this this uh, lack of transparency, this inability to hold this in, these institutions accountable, this isn't new. Uh, COVID, like I said, it's highlighting those fault lines. It's, it's, it's showing these issues in stark relief um, because there are so many other issues that are happening. Like Rachel's mentioning, you know, individuals feeling like they, you know, they can't communicate and what's going to happen and are they being subtly coerced or threatened on the inside? I mean, just small things. I, I sent a bunch of uh, Christmas cards to people that I communicate with that are locked inside. Um, people that have taken classes with me because I teach inside um, uh, a prison and they were all returned to sender during COVID. So I couldn't even send Christmas cards. That was, that was contraband, this was dangerous. Um, even though scientific evidence demonstrates, well, COVID isn't going to live on my Christmas card through the mail so and that was, somehow so bring this into the institution. And we knew this before December. So, so just to clarify, so it was, they were returned and the justification was an infection just possibility? It was, we're not letting any in outside mail in right now. Mm -hmm. uh, COVID, we don't know what the risks are. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they were cards, 
not just a, a thin line piece of paper. So a card obviously is like a, like a construction material. It's a thicker piece of paper. They said that that could be used in some way to create some type of weapon. Right. It's not institutionally approved paper. Right. Yeah, these are familiar, <laughs> familiar themes. Um, just transitioning from the big picture down to the COVID, I mean, maybe sort of people could speak, and I think Vicky was going to speak to this at first, was some of the unique challenges of COVID. We're moving in that direction thematically here. Your microphone. That, yeah, thanks for that. Um, thanks to Jen and for um, that intro and then and Kevin for introducing us. And I, I do, before I start, I do want to acknowledge that I'm yes. on the beautiful uh, unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Abenaki people here in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Or, um, and just to echo what Jen's been saying, so certainly um, COVID has introduced some new problems in the prison system, but it's also um, has heightened and amplified some of the really existing problems that have been uh, around since, well, since I've been doing this work for over 20 years, but certainly prior to my time as well. And in my work with Justice Exchange, we've been hearing quite a few things to that effect, um, which, in, which no doubt Brittany and Rachel will be able to speak to as well. But just to give some context to the COVID, when the pandemic did hit, um, what we started to see initially was the provinces actually started to decarcerate some of its members. And so Alberta and Ontario had to decarcerate up until up to about 25% of its population, um, some not so much like Saskatchewan. And they were able to do this through varying processes, just the prisons themselves, uh, through temporary absences, house arrests, but also even on the front ends with bail agreements with, um, with the prosecutors and the like. So uh, that's what we were seeing at the provincial level. And we saw you know, up to 6,000 people, be, uh, levels of decarceration, levels of 6,000 people, and no significant or fundamental increase in ac crime activity, so to speak, or criminalization. Um, at the level of the, uh, as Jen was talking about, at the federal level with the Correctional Services of Canada, they took the opposite route and they sort of turned to more restrictive controls. And they decided to try to contain uh, COVID by suspending all prison visits and postponing temporary absences and work releases, cutting programs, and just quite simply isolating and segregating people. And I think what we saw initially was for the most part, they were able to contain COVID. There were a few outbreaks in five institutions at the federal level, but it, it wasn't um, as significant. But come the second wave, we've been seeing some significantly uh, high rates of COVID outbreaks all across the country. And in the uh, pandemic, uh, prison pandemic partnership to date has tracked over 6,000 known cases where the majority, 80 to 90% are actually the folks in prison, the prisoners themselves who've contracted COVID-19. And as far as we know, there's been 14 reported deaths, or sorry, four reported deaths COVID-19 related, but there's been some questionable uh, deaths that could possibly have been impacted by COVID but that haven't been reported as COVID related. So there's some questionable in, ter in terms of transparency there. There's some questionable data emerging as well. And part of this, you know, and I think I want to, I think it's important that we start to understand this approach. And again, going back to the second wave with the, uh, pr the provinces, they're, they're similarly taking the federal line where they're not decarcerating uh, as much anymore as well now. And it, all of this is kind of in line with this new trajectory of uh, crisis management. And this is the framework actually that Correction Institute called the new normal. And even that title suggests 
that we're living in a new state of crisis or an ongoing state of crisis so that the response starts to legitimate the restrictive and more punitive carceral controls that we're seeing across the board, right? And so not only are we seeing uh, people being locked down for 23 hours and being restricted within the prison systems as well, but this impacts their ability to get out and be released on, on, on parole. So they can't take programming, they can't do their temporary absences, they can't cascade into no known systems. And I've, I've just, just last week, I heard someone's uh, parole, he was telling me that his parole was delayed um, six months, and now it's been delayed for another six months. So we're we're talking about a year delay of parole. So there, this is, there are paroles being uh, delayed indefinitely, which speaks to like it's habeas corpus and the, you know, this, um, the violation of freedom of, and their liber uh, impacts on their liberties. So is, is this, I mean, in terms of the formalities in the correction system, is this the inter integrated risk management framework? Is that what you're specifically talking about? Yeah, so it is the integrated risk management framework, and it's which has been uh, capped or as the uh, the new normal. That's the new normal, right? Okay. Yeah. And so we've been hearing this discourse not in elsewhere, but all particularly within the prisons, and it suggests that we'll we'll never get back to a, a normal. It'll always be in a state of crisis. So um, how do just how do you think we explain or can we explain sort of in the early stages at least the different responses across the provinces versus the feds because I think there was a marked difference but I'm, I'm curious what you think about you know how do we explain that sorry the different responses the different responses in terms of decarceration sorry and the provinces to the federal yeah. institution it's um it's a good question I'm I've I feel like, it, you know, Saskatchewan, for example, didn't decarcerate at all while Ontario and, um, and Alberta were really looking at these kinds of practices. And I think there was a real push from the level of, um, uh, just from the, the public will, but the government will, like there was a real concern for people's well-being at, at, at that point. Um, we know that at the correctional and the federal level that they notoriously tend to take um, to take moves towards being more restrictive and punitive. That has always been the, the, uh, the trend or the approach that I've seen the federal government or the federal corrections take. If I could add to that, I think some of the differences between provincial and federal that, that Vicky was noting that there, there seemed to be differences between phase one and phase two of the, of the virus, right? And, you know, we, this is speculative, I would say at best right now, but, you know, generally speaking, provincial prisons are, um, you know, they have uh, higher rates of overcrowding and, and things like that. So decarcerating for them in the early um, uh, stages of, of the pandemic could have brought them down to um, capacity or just below capacity to make things a bit more manageable. So now that they've done that, it's about segregation and isolation in the same way that, that CSC is, is kind of uh, prioritizing their strategy. And I would say that, um, you know, corrections, I mean, just across the board, provincial and federal, their, their number one sort of priority is um, obviously to uh, manage risk and to assess risk. And in doing that, by prioritizing the, the, the concept of risk, um, they, be, they tend to become completely risk avoidant. It's almost like a zero tolerance um, with respect to, to any sort of perceived risk. So um, can you imagine the, the media headlines if uh, a prisoner was released because of COVID and committed some type of crime and, and the explosion that would happen in terms of media coverage, despite the fact, like Vicky's saying, 6,000 people were released 
And generally, there, this hasn't impacted our, our, our rates of crime in any, in any decipherable manner. So um, it only takes that one high profile case and all that type of media attention for, for these institutions become increasingly um, closed off and risk avoidance. So all of these factors, um, it's like a perfect storm right now for this, for this new normal to emerge. And yeah. I, I also want to add that um, although they were decarcerating at the beginning of the pandemic, now later on, a few months in, it's completely reversed where there's a lot of overcrowding in many um, provincial jails. Uh, so in some cases, you're going to have people that are isolated, solitary confinement type conditions. Uh, as Vicky said, 23 hours a day. But I'd say that's if you're lucky. Many cases, there was 24 hour a day lockdown for like days, weeks, even months at a time. Um, and then in other cases, there's overcrowding. So in a cell that was originally designed for one person, there's two, three, even four people with people sleeping on the floor, their head by a toilet, on a mat, um, locked in a small cell without access to a shower, phone, fresh air for like days and days on end. So if you can imagine uh, how difficult that would be. Yeah, and, and going back to some of this risk management stuff, I was just wondering, curious how sort of assessments or determinations of health figure into, I mean, as, as um, Jennifer said, managing risk has always been part of this, but health adds a whole other dimension to this. I was curious if people had sort of any comments or thoughts about adding new variables into the mix. Well, I mean, I'm jumping down a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, a question here, but I think, you know, from reports that we're getting, um, you know, through Justice Exchange, through uh, direct phone calls from prisoners uh, reporting things, a lot of them are struggling to have access at all, or that they have limited access to PPE, the personal protective equipment. So um, if you don't have access to a mask, um, they're not given hand sanitizer in the same way because that could be used, um, you know, they're, they're always concerned about whether or not people are going to drink that because there's alcohol in it. So um, what do they actually have access to? And, and hygiene in prison has always been a concern. I mean, these are not clean facilities, generally speaking. Um, some of these buildings are a hundred years old and you can imagine all of these people with an airborne virus in a hundred year old building, I can't imagine the concerns I would have around ventilation. So some of these things are structural concerns, specifically like ventilation for COVID, um, but it's also around protective equipment. Prisoners should not have to fashion, hand fashion masks out of their bed sheets. And that's happening. Pardon me? And then get punished for it. And then get punished for it because they're destroying property. Exactly. So, I mean, there's, there's a cycle here um, where we see them doing these types of things. And this isn't unique. Um, you know, it's certainly not unique to Canada. It's happening all over the world. Um, but it is happening in Canada. And, and so far, there hasn't been much coverage of that at all in the media. Uh, I don't think people are really aware of it. Um, so I also know that there have been um, reports that staff reasonably so, don't want to go to work um, in, an, in a closed institution where the virus can spread. So if you have lots of staff that are saying, I'm not going to go in, what staff, what are the staff that are willing to go in, right? How does that impact the relational dynamics between staff and between staff and prisoners, uh, given who might actually want to go in? And does that mean that we have fewer staff 
that are actually in the institution, which obviously leads to more lockdowns, use of segregation, because they're going to say, well, we don't have enough people on staff. We can't let you out of ourselves. So it's there. All of these things are sort of connected. Um, but in terms of the health, I don't. I certainly don't think that they're doing regular COVID checks every day. I mean, for me to go to get a haircut, they're going to take my temperature. Are they doing that inside every day? No. No. I mean, in terms of the correctional officers, this is something Justin Pichet and I were talking about last week. This is this is more of an American phenomenon, but but um, there's reports in like five, four or five different states in the U.S. that over 50 percent of correctional officers are refusing to be vaccinated because of the whole anti-vax kind of right. thing in the states. I don't think that's as prevalent in Canada, but it is kind of just a whole other level of craziness kind of in the picture. So. Yeah. Um, maybe just thinking about the, the federal system and some of the specifics, I wanted to sort of ask Rachel and specific, specifically about some of these challenges. We've already sort of touched on some of them, but give you an opportunity to sort of tease out uh, some additional ones. At the beginning of the pandemic, specifically uh, in Grand Valley Institution, which is the federal prison for women in Ontario, um, it was there, there was a small outbreak there and it was turned into a maximum security unit, basically. So um, I was in contact with prisoners who were there, uh, but not until about, I think, six to eight weeks in, uh, because they weren't able to have any access to like outgoing mail, um, getting like stamps, writing material, which they have to purchase from Canteen. Canteen was frozen. They didn't have access to phones. They weren't allowed out of their cell to get any fresh air or exercise, cook their own food or do their own laundry, all these kinds of things. Uh, no work, no access to the gym, library programs, anything at all. So any women who were not able to, uh, in the federal system, you can get boxes of personal items sent in. There's certain things like books or a TV or music. Uh, so any women who did not have access to those, they would just be stuck in their cell with nothing to do for 24 hours a day. And this went on for weeks and weeks at a time. Uh, and then they slowly let, started letting them have like 10 minutes of phone conversations or half an hour outside. Um, so that went on for a few months. Uh, and then in terms of the bigger picture, not just the minimum unit, prison is already isolating and has um, limited access to the community and resources and that sort of thing. Um, and prisoners are often punished for helping each other. Um, I'll touch on that a little bit later, but there's not any good access to healthcare. Um, so it takes, in regular times, it takes weeks to see a doctor. Um, so unless you have a serious chronic illness, you're not gonna go for flu or a cold. And prisoners don't have access to any over-the-counter medications, uh, things like cough syrup, basic cold and flu medications. Uh, the only thing that, we could get before because I was incarcerated at GVI for three and a half years um, is like Halls and Vicks Babel Rub uh, from Canteen. So it's, it's barely anything. And then also there's nothing to keep people busy during the day. So we said there's no programming. There was no school for a long time, uh, for months. I'm not able to go to any employment opportunities in the prison or obviously not in the community, um, which impacts prisoners' ability to reach out to their loved ones in the community um, because prisoners are responsible for paying their own phone bill, uh, for buying stamps, writing materials, that kind of thing. So if they're not working, how are they going to be able to do that? So with all of this 
isolation and lockdown. Prisoners have been reporting like much higher rates of anxiety, depression, uh, tension and stress, um, arguments and fights breaking out. Um, everybody's kind of on edge. People are really scared, frustrated, angry. People out here are worried about everyone inside. Often we don't know what's going on because of the lack of transparency uh, that we've mentioned. Um, All visitations have been canceled. Yeah. yeah. So duration. Yeah no, yeah. no outside visits at all. Uh, so they've for a few months there was nothing, and then they started doing video visits, um, which has. I really hope that that doesn't continue after here because that's been happening in the provincial system as a trend. So it's almost like a supermax prison. Um, if they're, I mean, over video, it's if people don't have access to the technology, a good internet connection, laptop, that kind of thing. And also the staff members are closely monitoring those visits. Whereas prior to the pandemic, when you would have people come in to visit you, there would be guards around, but they're not going to listen to your conversation. You'd get a little bit of privacy, but now guards are sitting in while people are talking on the video visit and they're cutting off their calls um, instantly with no warning. If, for example, um, someone comes onto the screen that hasn't been approved by CSC, and that could even be like a small child running by or something or someone saying hi, and they'll just cut that right off. And that goes back to the risk management because safety and security of the institution is always prioritized above anything else. Just such a problem with the video in the context of like, we're all working from home, we're all here. So if, I, if I'm on your acceptable person list and we're having a conversation and I live with someone who happens to be in the living room where I'm, where I'm talking to you, then all of a sudden I'm, I'm cut off. And I, Rachel's point about the, the virtual visits is really important because this is tying into what Vicky's saying around the new normal. This is a, a cheaper, easier, uh, risk-free way of you know, communicating with people. So they don't ever want visitors just on a regular day. They don't wanna to have to do searches. They don't wanna to have to think that, that people are bringing things in or bringing things out. And so if you do a virtual visit, all of that possibility is eliminated. Right. So I understand that there's, there's a need for that technology um, sometimes, but the risk of that superseding and becoming the norm in terms of visitation, in terms of court appearances, that's a major problem. That's a threat, I think, especially for court appearances, that's a threat to, to justice proceedings. Yeah, Justified the, under the new normal. I'm, I'm curious in terms of, I mean, because you know, some of you may know, I'm really interested in sort of information technology and monitoring and things like that. Um, mentioned that this, the technological abilities in your home, is that how this is being run? Because here in, in Alberta, um, historically, people go to a site where there's a bank of 50 different monitors that people have get access to, and then they could talk with their loved ones or etc. Are, 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 are there situations where people are like zooming in from home? So I at the provincial level um, in Ontario, for example, um, the Toronto South Detention Center, which is basically a supermax, that's how the video visits are run, where you have to actually physically go there, uh, which is a problem if people live far away. What's the point of doing that? Um, at the federal level, what's been happening over COVID um, is they're just having people do it from home because they don't have it set up the same way as the provincial. And hopefully it doesn't become the new normal after 
after this, but that's what's happening. So to, to Rachel's sort of long list of inequities and stressors and problems, I mean, I don't know that we have an answer to this, but do we have anything beyond anecdotal evidence about how this might translate to higher levels of self-harm or suicide ideation or et cetera? Is, do we have any sense of how this is percolating into people's kind of lived health realities or mental health realities? And that's for anyone. That's for anyone. Um, so my take would be, I don't think we have empirical data yet. Uh, I think there's some that's trickling in. I think that the, the, like our colleague, Justin, that you spoke to, he runs the jail hotline here for the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center, and he helped start the one in Toronto. Um, so those types of initiatives are getting that kind of empirical data, like word directly, you know, from the individual calling to report that they're experiencing X, Y, and Z. Um, but it's certainly not universal. It's certainly not across all of our institutions and whatever information CSC collects, if they're collecting it, um, becomes a matter of, well, in order for us to get it, we have to do a, a, a one to two year long ATIP request, right. which I, Brittany could certainly speak to because she so, experienced that for her dissertation, so um, in order our, to get this information. For our listeners, just remind them what an ATIP request is. Please. So, yeah, right. So, um, for any federal institution in, in Canada, you, in order to get information that might not be publicly available. So, um, you know, minutes from meetings, internal policy documents, assessments of different things. Um, you have to file an access to information and privacy request. Um, we have a similar uh, process at the provincial level, but those are called FOI, which is a freedom of information, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a process in order to get information that's not publicly available. Thank you. And I, also, and I also want to add on top of that, um, I don't trust anything that CSC tells the public because often they lie. And I've seen this for myself while I was incarcerated there or while I was out here talking to people that are inside is CSC will be saying one thing, oh, we're prioritizing prisoners health, we're giving them PPE, we're doing everything we can. And then you hear from prisoners, uh, no, guards aren't even following these public health guidelines and we don't have access to any of these things and we're being locked down. So there's often a huge disconnect between reality and what is being told to us. Policy and practice are the, uh, often very different. Yeah, that's so, a really good point. So going back to the sort of new normal, I mean, I think the new normal has implications in lots of different sort of spheres and realms and... Um, Jen, you talked a little bit about health. I just want to sort of see if you had any other additional comments or observations about what this might mean in terms of health practice or the, the lived reality for health. Well, you know, I really, really worry. Um, I've done research before on the impact of, of segregation and, and long-term isolation, um, specifically on criminalized women. And, and I know Brittany and Rachel um, have both written to that effect and experienced that and can talk about that and Vicky as well. So um, that's a big concern. I think it's not just health. Of course, we're, we're, we're really thinking about health because we don't want people to be at risk of, of contracting this uh, virus and the implications that that has. Um, but it's also the mental health aspect. And if we're, if we're relying strictly on lockdown and no visitation and no programming and just isolation. I mean, you can see how, you know, Rachel's point about the difference between policy and, and practice actually happens because they can say, well, of course we're protecting you. You're isolated. You, you, you know, that's how we're, you don't need a mask when you're in your cell because you're alone. 
So the longer you're in your cell alone, so it's, it has these kinds of ripple effects, I think, in terms of the day-to-day practices on that frontline level. Um, and in terms of health, I mean, I've, I've long been an advocate for the separation of health and mental health services from corrections. Um, it boggles my mind. I've been saying it for 20 years. I don't understand how we can put our faith in an institution whose priority is security and punishment to provide care. Like these are absolutely opposing, like diametrically opposed kind of ideas. So um, the one thing that we we really need to be um, vocal about, unified about and advocate for is to separate that. Prisoners that need access to doctors should not be awaiting months to see one doctor. No, um, they no, should be able to see doctors in the community and that they don't wanna do that because that means that we have to go back and forth and drive vans and we have to do all these extra security checks and we have to strip you on the way out and strip you on the way back in and do all these. So the, the, the risks increase from the, the perspective of corrections and therefore the practices in order to enact those types of things become um, more detailed, riskier, dangerous in their mind. Um, but that's, that's a priority. Um, I really, we really need to have people have regular access in the community to um, physicians and uh, nurses and mental health specialists because how can I sit down with a social worker or psychologist and talk to them about what I'm thinking, feeling and experiencing. If I'm being threatened, if I, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm experiencing some sort of distress when that's gonna go in my file and potentially be used against me in some way. That, that that's going to come to bite me, you know, later on. Oh, well, she's experiencing this mental health distress. We need to put her in lockdown. Um, she said she's not getting along with so-and-so. So that person has a history of violence. So we're going to isolate that person because this person made this comment. Um, all of those kinds of things happen every single day. And not so, only that, we need to we need to also think about how prisons can't be the experts at everything. Yes, like we yes. Defer to prisons all the time to be the mental health experts and the health experts and the you know all the other kinds of expertise that they're they're taking on. The only thing they do well is incapacitate. <laughs> and but I do think I think Brittany has some things to add to the mental health. Yeah. Definitely. Sorry, can I just, sorry, Brittany, I, I, it's just based on Jen's point about um, the using the CSC employed psychologists um, and doctors, uh, but especially for the mental health piece is that prisoners do not trust the CSC psychologists. So in the community, we know that there's um, the patient client <laughs> confidentiality, uh, you're not concerned, there's only a few minor reasons why a doctor, whatever, share your file. In CSC, it's the opposite in the system is everything is documented, everything is shared with the other guards and management um, and absolutely used against you. So what typically happens is that prisoners do not want to go ask for that kind of help because if somebody says, for example, that they feel like they're going to hurt themselves or kill themselves, instead we tend to turn inwards and take care of each other and look out for each other because if they go and report that they're going to be put in segregation strapped down to a table forced to take medications and basically tortured and completely dehumanized so prisoners are literally terrified of the psychologists Brittany you were going to sort of um, jump in on some of the mental health issues please yeah sure so I mean we already know that 
mental health is is really poor inside inside uh, prisons. And you know, I I can only imagine that with further isolation, um, segregation, uh, everyone is segregated essentially, right? And so you know, what happens is that these things that actually contribute to improving women's mental health, which as Rachel said, is, um, is peer support, or, you know, sometimes it's programs that are offered outside of correctional, like official correctional programming, they're community programs, they are, you know, dance and music programs, or theater, or things like that. Those are the programs that that women value that they they find, um, you know, community in. And when programming, no outside programming is offered or when you're locked in yourself, first of all, you have, like Rachel said, no, no, um, you can't support each other. You have no official, you know, peer support, um, which women have told me in, in my research that they often value and go to instead of because they don't trust um, the, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, um, any sort of counselors. And, you know, so that further can only worsen their mental health, right? And, you know, I do, I do also want to say that lots of the women that I talk to, um, you know, kind of going back to the, the peer support, um, they, they, don't really like necessarily the content of the programs and and things like that and and they are inherently kind of problematic which i am looking at right now in my research um but what lots of them did tell me is how they really liked coming together with other people that maybe they like chatting with others and and kind of being able to talk about their mental health to relate to each other so again we see that those things are are taken away, are removed, and that isolation only kind of perpetuates the the feelings of of isolation. I think I think we 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 assume that intervention needs to be heavy handed. We assume in this, especially in this environment, that it needs to be super intense, right? Um, when we know that um, it's more about, I mean, and Rachel's re research will speak to this about building community. Oh, sorry, that's my connection there. Um, prisoners are community members and we don't think about them in that way. And if we did better at maintaining their connection to different community organizations um, that would assist them upon the release, for example, um, if they had counseling in the community, if they had access to social workers in the community, if they had access to addiction treatment in the community, if they had access to housing specialists and, and all of these things, it would lessen the burden on corrections uh, it would separate the powers that be and the expertise, um, you know, that, that we ex that we seem to expect corrections to have, um, and it would do a lot more, I think, for um, release and for helping people upon release. So instead of just being released out into the, oh, you, we know that you're going here. Okay, that's kind of all we do is make sure you have a place to sleep when when you're released. Um, they would actually have a network, a stronger network of support around them. It would actually make release um, likely more successful for a lot of individuals. If they, were, if they were involved in community organizations all the way through, not just when they're released, expected to go and find and make those connections. Because the way it is now, some community organizations don't want to deal with prisoners. 
They say, oh, you're a corrections case. So you've got to go to only E. Fry, Elizabeth Fry or John Howard or the organizations that are known to help um, you know, criminalize individuals. And so there's that separation. And we, we need to do better at um, providing more holistic service, I think. As we're sorry, who, who did I interrupt? I was just going to say that in pre-pandemic times, there was little access to um, community reentry planning and supports. Uh, Jen said that um, sometimes they make sure that a person, a former prisoner, has a place to sleep. That's not always the case, though. I, I know people that were literally released to a park bench downtown Toronto. <laughs> And they had nowhere to go. Um, and then obviously they came back within two or three weeks um, without those kinds of supports. So this was before the pandemic. Now with the increased isolation and disconnection from the community uh, and the extended parole on top of the, ba it's basically conditions of torture and dehumanization that are occurring inside right now. Uh, so now when people are getting out when things are locked down, they haven't had contact with anything. Um, there is no employment. Um, there is so many issues going on and so few supports and resources and planning. It's just going to make these issues much more serious and difficult. And I think there's going to be a higher rate of people being returned to prison um, for minor parole violations. So as we were talking, I was thinking that many of the things that we've identified or you've identified are very generic to sort of incarcerated populations. I was thinking maybe a question for all of you or, or anyone who wants to, to jump in. I mean, you are all very interested in the experience of incarcerated women. And I was just wondering, are there any things that you think are specifically acute for or of concern for women in this situation or maybe other types of specific populations uh, Indigenous folks or whatever the case may be. So I'm just curious if anyone has any thoughts about sort of more, you know, specific types of populations that might be sort of facing challenges. We all seem to have something. So I, Vicki, you were, <laughs> go just, ahead. I'll just quickly say, well, one of the things we're finding with like uh, at the Center for Justice Exchange is uh, we're getting a lot of calls and letters from folks from lifers because it's having a tremendous impact on their ability to navigate the system. And they've been in for a very long time, upwards to, you know, um, just, just someone who was released recently with uh, 30 years of incarceration. These are really lengthy periods of time to be disconnected from the entire world. And, uh, and what we're doing and what they're seeing is that because uh, in order for them to get parole, they have to, they have to cascade through the system and show that they're worthy of parole, so to speak. And because everything's being postponed and delayed, um, they're not able to access parole. And so it's been having significant impacts on their liberty. So somebody else wanted to jump in on this or no? I would say there's a lot of overlap with these issues for many different groups, like women, men, um, non, gender binary people, um, anybody who's experiencing homelessness, poverty, addiction, uh, mental illness. I think there's yeah a lot of overlap. It aggravates all of those. I think all of those factors, it, it just aggravates the situation. It makes the situation you know, more complex, more difficult. Um, COVID has made me think a lot about um, elderly people in prison. Um, specifically. And, you know, we, we have this long sort of narrative of, of describing elderly people in a correctional system as being 50 plus, which 
you know, on the outside is offensive to most people. Nobody <laughs> at 50 wants to be called elderly, right? Um, and as I, as I near that, right? Uh, so I think, um, but I, you know, it's something that we really need to think about because if we, these are the individuals that should have been the, 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 you know, catch the easy rabbits first, let out some of the elderly folk, um, you know, into the community. Um, Vicky's talking about some of these lifers. I mean, you can imagine decades inside that disconnect um, the entire world has evolved, shifted and changed and you haven't been a part of it. You, you've never, you know, somebody has been inside for 20 years has never used the internet. Yeah. Like think about that. What does that mean um, in terms of how they're going to be able to get out and function in a regular context, but get out and function in this context where it's hard to find housing right now, where there's you know no jobs available. So how do you get a job, uh, not only with a criminal record, but in the context of COVID? So how do you afford to live? So all of these things are sort of aggravated. And what we're seeing is like the, the case that Vicky pointed out, well, I got my parole delayed for six months and now I got it delayed for another six months because they're not going to let me out if I don't have a way to, you know, pay for a place to live or get rent or do any of these, these other things. So it's, it's, you can't have a conversation um, about COVID in prison without thinking about health, mental health, without thinking about um, employment, without thinking about poverty, housing, all of these things. Um, they're absolutely fundamentally connected. So I guess we're, we're coming up on close to a year of dealing with this in some capacity or another. Um, just looking back, are there, what lessons do you think we should have learned or things that we could have done different that we didn't? Um, and uh, yeah, I'm thinking specifically about sort of on the inside. There's other lessons for post-release, but um, thoughts about you know, lessons learned. What, what mistakes did we make or what things maybe were done right in some places and not others? My first, the, 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 the first thing I would say is that we needed to think more about decarceration or depopulation, whatever the term is that you want to, that you want to use there, um, having fewer people inside. And, you know, we could have, in the same way that the federal government is trying to um, prioritize who's going to get access to the vaccine first, who needs it the most, who's most at risk. We, you know, we're talking about nurses and doctors and frontline staff. We're talking about um, you know, uh, remote indigenous communities. We're, talk, we're, we're, we're vaccinating those that are 80 plus and then 75 plus and then 70 and kind of working our way down to the rest of us. Um, we need to think about that with prison as well. Uh, we should have been decarcerating elderly people. We should have been decarcerating people that were in there for minor offenses. I mean, um, you know, drug offenses, things like this. The, all of that should have been like a no-brainer, uh, an absolute no-brainer. Who has a place that they can go to upon release that is safe, um, that they can live in the context of this virus? And uh, of course, that would have taken time, um, but they, they should have been doing that. There, there's no question. Um, you know, given the fact that just a few years ago, the federal government was put on notice by the Supreme Court of Canada that segregation is a violation of human rights, that it's, you know, tantamount to torture, and we're not allowed to do it anymore. Here we have the context of the pandemic, and what are we doing? Segregating. So at a time when we are absolutely in need of alternatives, we just fall back on what we know. 
Yeah, and one of the um, solutions they've introduced thus far, they you know they have looked at you know giving vaccine to the elderly or the aged, and whatnot. But they've also just recently announced the one point two million dollar fund going towards um, a for uh, a study a study on um, on the prisons and how COVID nineteen is spreading throughout the prisons. So that's their response now after you know six six thousand people have been diagnosed. Um, there's been hunger strikes all across the board in Toronto South Detention, Ottawa Carlton Detention, Saskatoon Correctional, Pine Grove, uh, Drum Heller, right, and youth detention centers. So now they're, they're going to actually try to find out how those, how, how it's coming in and how it's flowing and to seeing if the, who has antibodies um, to the virus, right? It's, it's, it's all too little too late and we're still not looking at these kinds of um, decarceration strategies that we've been should look should have been looking at from the very onset and I'm going to be a little bit cliche and please don't hate me for this but you know <laughs> the, the, the novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said uh, you know famously said the degree of civilization and society um, can be judged by entering its prisons yeah. and the federal and provincial governments and every provincial government has recognized the tremendous impact that COVID-19 has had on people on the public's health mental health and well-being now you take that and you amplify and heighten that by at least a hundredfold to understand. And, and I, I know I couldn't possibly imagine the, the toll that it's taken on people on the inside. And so I think, you know, just in terms of steps moving forward, like if you can appreciate your own circumstances and how, how COVID-19 has impacted you, I've had, you know, I've had personal family members try to commit suicide as a result of the impacts of, of COVID-19. I've had a family member um, who actually overdosed with the fentanyl, which is a whole other crisis that we're not talking about. There's been more fentanyl deaths in Canada since the COVID-19 than there has been actual deaths by COVID-19, which is a whole other crisis we haven't been talking about. So you start to think about the kinds of impacts COVID-19 on, has on you, and then try to appreciate, extend a little bit of that empathy and understanding compassion yeah. to the folks yeah. who are inside the prison. And as Jen had said, eventually they're going to get out. They're part of our community. 95% of people in prison are eventually getting out. And they didn't go, they went to prison for punishment, not to be further punished and to be, or to, for a death sentence with COVID-19, whether that's by way of suicide, mental health, or the disease itself. I, mean, I think Vicky's this... point is uh, around empathy is really important. And that's something that we're, that we're really, the four of us have been really talking about this idea of, um, you know, okay, we, we say we, we get to that point where we can move care to the community and out of the prison's control. Um, we have to think about what a caring community can look like. And, you know, one thing that COVID has really, I, I think, shone a light on for most Canadians, because most Canadians don't touch the prison system in the sense that they, they, they're at such an arm's length from it that they don't really know what goes on. Unless you know somebody inside, you don't think about it very much. And the one thing that every Canadian has been thinking about is how shameful um, our response to COVID has been and the impact that it's had on long-term care homes. Um, it, it's, it's a national shame. It's an international shame, right? And I, I honestly think that all we can say is that we're lucky that those rates of death that we have seen in our long-term care homes in this country as a result of COVID have not happened in the prisons yet because both are closed total institutions. Nobody's getting in, nobody's getting out. The workers go in and that's about it. And it, it, it 
easily could happen in an institutional environment like the prison. So having empathy for and understanding that they're members of our community, maybe we can start realizing all of those, you know, all of the distress that we're feeling every day and how out of sorts we're all feeling and how isolated and depressed and anxious and all of these other feelings that we're having. Can we empathize? Can we, you know, put ourselves in somebody else's shoes um, because of this context? And maybe it'll actually open, give us the kind of leverage to open up a conversation about doing things differently. And just expanding on that for a second, uh, so looking at the empathy piece, um, out here, we're able to go outside when we want for a walk. We're able to make some comfort food, eat whatever we want. We can pick up the phone, call people. We can use the internet. We can go on the TV. We have all kinds of supports and access to things to make um, our isolation more manageable, bearable. Where inside they don't. They're completely isolated and they don't even have access to things to keep their mind busy. So people are being, Again, this is just anecdotally, we don't have the empirical evidence, but what I've heard is there's people being placed on more medication, like psychotropic meds, anti-anxiety, anti-depression medications. So that's a huge problem too. So we were just sort of looking backwards at what might might have done. I'm just curious maybe to Brittany, um, looking forward, I mean, is this, are there possibilities in thinking about what's happened about progressive change? Can, can this be a vehicle for kind of doing things better in the future? Yeah, I mean, we are the, of, of the position that it definitely should be a vehicle for progressive change. I mean, like we've said, I mean, it's been a, a year since this has started and it's not too late, but it needs to happen now, right? It needs to, we need to start implementing and addressing all of these things that we have talked about because what, ha- what we don't want to happen is for this new normal, you know, to be maintained, right? These really more oppressive strategies that that come about in the context of the pandemic. And, you know, that's really problematic. So we don't want to see these, um, these new normal become everyday policies at going, going forward. So, you know, we, we need to take a take a look at the the institution itself, right? And this, you know, centuries old institution that was designed for something that is not, it's not relevant anymore for the, especially in the, in the context of the, the contemporary social problems that we have, right? And, and so we need to look at this in order to look beyond carceral solutions is our position and look beyond what that means for the prison community, for our community, right? And, you know, it's not so far off. We saw this summer how the defund the police, um, you know, movement kind of came about, how it really kind of entered into everyday conversation, into mainstream media, journalists, politicians were talking about it. Um, it became part of, you know, dinnertime conversation. And we, we want that to be, we want this to be that too. We want to see this be mobilizing the community, right? We wanna see real possible things come from this and we wanna see it, you know, now <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. In, in, some, in some ways that cycles back to the challenges where I think we started in terms of the closed institution that's difficult to sort of get public 
sympathy for because you don't have sub, you know, there's the lack of visibility and anyway, I'm just reiterating what you said. So um, I think maybe just for Rachel, but I think for everyone, um, I, I'm just thinking for the public, which, which is key for any kind of change, what type of lessons do you think they should learn? What do you think maybe they don't know about what's going on, which would be key for them if we're going to sort of institute some kind of effective change? So we were all already talking about uh, the need for empathy and understanding with the lack of prisoners access to any kinds of supports. Um, so I'm, I'm not gonna go back to that, uh, but what we did touch on that I'd like to expand on is how prisoners take care of one another. Uh, so when, when everybody's isolated and segregated, that's not possible, but in certain prisons, so G GDI for instance, uh, people live in living units. It's like a cottage instead of a prison range with cells. So there's like 10 to 12 women living in one house. So in that case, if they are isolated in the house, they're still able to be there for one another. Um, and that's what we do in terms of taking care of somebody in mental health crisis. We would make sure like somebody is al al always with this one woman who says she's gonna self-harm to make sure she doesn't do that and talk to her and be there for her. Uh, if people are sick, somebody might run you a bath or make you chicken noodle soup like you would with your family or friends out here. Um, taking care of each other in terms of um, buying somebody hygiene items because they don't have any money or giving somebody stamps, writing materials, sharing food, lending a music CD or a book or clothing, uh, helping make a call to somebody if prisoners don't uh, have anybody that they're able to call. They, people could do a three-way. Now, all of these things that I just mentioned are actually illegal in the prison system. They're basic neighborly activities. And if you think about a healthy, happy community, these are things that we would encourage normally, but prisoners are fined, uh, punished, segregated, longer time uh, inside for doing these kind of helpful, supportive caring actions, which makes absolutely no sense to me at all. Um, but that's what I think the public can learn is we should try to take care of one another as a community, as neighbors, even you can do that at a distance too, safely, right? Uh, checking in with people, checking with your neighbors, friends, uh, if somebody's stuck at home, maybe if someone's elderly, uh, you could go drop off some groceries, just little things like that make a big difference. And I think we, I think this might provide a sort of building on what Brittany was saying around, you know, what we want this context maybe to highlight and show and 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 create this sort of conversation at a, at an everyday kind of level across the country. Um, getting people not just to empathize but to understand that that you know, just because you've committed a crime doesn't mean that you're not a citizen. It doesn't mean that you lose all of your rights because you have committed this crime. The only right you are legally allowed to be deprived of is your liberty. Um, and that's for the duration of your sentence. You're, you are entitled to all of your other, you know, human rights. Um, and, and to maybe start thinking about uh, the fact that we have like, what are our own prejudices culturally, socially, what are we taught um, in educational systems, in uh, the media about who prisoners are, about what they are. Um, we, we tend to, you know, very reductionist thinking and we, we tend to reduce criminalized people to the essence of their offense. You are a thief. You are a murderer. You are a rapist. You are a this. 
um, as though that's their only, that their crime is their master status, is their only identity location. Um, and that does such damage, um, you know, not only to someone's self-worth and self-esteem, but really to the soul of the individual. I mean, how do you come out and, and, and sort of get around that when you have to constantly relate this information? So understanding um, as Vicky said, everybody's getting out. The majority of people are getting out. Um, we don't need to harbor all of our conversations around the the one percent of the population that we're you know that we're worried about or that is at risk of reoffense or that it might be considered dangerous. We should be focusing more of our energy on the fact that all these people are going to get out, and they're much more like non-criminalized folk than we think they are, um, that they're still human beings, that they live and breathe, that they're parents and friends and sisters and daughters and husbands and wives and all of these things, and that they mean something to a lot of people. And, and how do we incorporate them more into our communities? And, and so we have to think about housing as a justice issue. We have to think about poverty as a justice issue. Right. If you can, if we have a, a general basic income, a living wage, and we start to reduce poverty, if we have better, uh, sustainable, affordable housing, and we as a culture recognize that not everybody is going to be able to work a full time job because of a whole host of a number of issues, but we still have a responsibility and a duty, to, uh, a duty of care to Canadian citizens. That's going to transform what our what our social communities look like. Um, and so these are the bigger social transformation issues that I think COVID, you know, it's, it's planting seeds. Um, we have a lot of work to do to sort of fertilize those seeds to have these germane conversations and, and to, we have to shift, shift public thinking. And that's hard to do, especially in the midst of the way the media tends to cover criminalization issues, but it's which not is sensational, right? Like it's <laughs> Yeah. And it's not ideological to think about what that world might look like, you know, just going back to what Brittany was saying around the Black Lives Matters movement and defunding, you know, like, or the idea or Jen was saying about, you know, the, the capturing serial killers, like I'm not deluded and certainly Indigenous communities and, and the thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women are not deluded into the belief that somehow the prisoners are keeping us safe. And in fact, it's Indigenous communities that have been with a lack of uh, police involvement or when they are involved, they actually are involved in a punitive, uh, violent or criminalizing way so that indigenous communities themselves have been organized uh, to protect, to keep, to keep women safe, to support each other. And um, we recently did some research um, through, it's called the Unearthing Justices Campaign and you can find it at the justiceexchange.ca website over 500 plus grassroots initiatives to address the murders in, uh, of the missing and indigenous women. So to give you an example, uh, in Winnipeg, after Tina Fontaine's body was found, they had asked the police if they would drag the Red River to see if they could find more bodies. And the, the police refused because they said it'd be ineffective and efficient. And of course, if your mono function is to simply solve cases, yeah, it would be ineffective and efficient. So Bernadette Smith, she started a campaign, brought the community together called Drag the Red, and they started to look for bodies in the Red River of Winnipeg. But more than that, what they started to do is they brought community, they pooled their resources, they supported families, they provided toolkits for searches, right? So it was a really galvanizing of the community. So it's not ideological logical or some radical belief to think about what a world would look like without police or prisons. Just go to an Indigenous community where I've worked in communities where police are, won't even go on reserve. 
right? So it's not like I think it, it exists and it's there. It's here in Canada within within Indigenous communities, and they do some incredible, brilliant work that fashions a real um, diverse and pluralistic understanding of justice or justices. So, so Vicky, could you say the name of that initiative again? You, there was a little technological glitch when you started. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> computer fairies. The, it was, it's the Unearthing Justices uh, campaign and it's on the uh, justiceexchange.ca website. You could find Great. it there. Thank you. And my, my son might be yelling at me in the background, so ignore him. We don't hear it. <laughs> I don't hear it anyway. Um, just, I wanted to, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly, you know, I'm, you know, Vicky did the great land acknowledgement and I, I, I kind of failed to do that in the beginning. So I, I, I would say that, you know, Brittany, Rachel and I are all working here in the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the, of the Algonquin people. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not an expert in Indigenous justice. So I, I would, I would, you know, put that as a caveat. But um, one thing that we need to be thinking about specific to the context of COVID is the fact there's a history there um, with the Canadian government, with the crown um, and, and disease. And thinking about this in the context of the relationship between indigenous communities and the crown, um, the fact that there, the, some of the major outbreaks for COVID are currently happening in Saskatchewan where there's the, the indigenous population makes up 75% of uh, the prison population. Um, we need to be really thinking about why it is they're focusing only on segregation as opposed to decarceration, um, because vaccination efforts are going to be um, rightfully so skeptical and tense between uh, some Indigenous communities and the Crown, given the history of those relationships. Um, you see similar things in the United States with um, Indigenous communities and Black communities because of historical um, inappropriate testing on those groups. So we have to think about the legacy of these interactions and the legacies of, um, you know, crown and state treatment of indigenous peoples and how that might come to influence the COVID context. Um, the fact that they're not decarcerating Saskatchewan, I think is really telling because vaccinations, um, you know, could be difficult for some communities. I'm thinking, um, I think we've I covered all of the main things we thought we would identify, plus some more. But before I kind of wrap up, I did want to invite us, are there things that maybe um, we didn't say or didn't cover that, that during the course of the conversation you thought be, should be uh, put on the table? And that's for anyone. We're kind of looking through our list here. That's, mm -hmm. Well, it's encouraging because I thought it was a great conversation. And I thought we talked a lot. <laughs> so, um, okay. So maybe uh, maybe that's a good place to sort of say thank you. Uh, that was excellent, and uh, we will be in touch. And I am. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Once again, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and most other places that podcasts are found. If you're in the Apple Podcast Store, give us a nice five-star rating. It helps with the search algorithm. And remember to follow us on social media. Twitter, it's at CCR underscore U of A. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. And like our videos and, uh, and subscribe. Thank you very much. And we hope you'll join us for the next one.